Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Before I begin to reflect on an extraordinary few days in the drama of the virus and British politics, uh, just to let you know, a big announcement. The second virtual Rock and Roll Politics, the live show, will be on the King's Place website at 7 o'clock next Monday. That's Monday, May the 18th. If you log on just a couple of minutes beforehand and you can get straight on it, there will be a virtual rock and roll politics show. It'll be the second one. First half, I'll set the scene and then the second half, we'll have a discussion in which you can ask questions, etc. And um, it was good fun last time. Uh, well, I enjoyed it. I do. I, no, I was told that others did as well. So do tune in next Monday, May the 18th at seven o'clock. When I was watching Boris Johnson's televised address to the nation and the confused aftermath of that address, I kept on going back to a conversation that I had with Tony Blair before he became prime minister in 19. 19- 97. It must have been, I think, in 1996. And he said to me that one of the things he did as leader of the opposition was every now and again, he went away and looked at the range of proposals that Labour were making in the build up to the 1997 election, and that would form the manifesto. And he said to me, he would bomb proof those propositions. He would sit there and ask himself, could he answer any question that arose from any of the policies that they were putting forward? Would his answers themselves trigger a further series of troublesome questions? And if so, what should be done about that policy? And he gave me an interesting example. As some of you, those of you older than 25, which is not many of you, will recall Labour was proposing and had been proposing for quite some time to introduce a Scottish Parliament if it were elected. And then Blair reflected on this proposition for a bit during one of his bomb-proofing sessions and thought to himself, well, hold on a minute, here is trouble. We're proposing to have a referendum on a single currency. Single currency was all the rage in the mid-1990s, that ancient period of history. He was saying, yeah, well, we're having a referendum on a single currency, and we're justifying that proposition on the grounds that it's a major constitutional change. And that was the ostensible reason they gave for proposing a referendum on a single currency. As ever in British politics in Europe, there were about 10,000 reasons for that proposition, not least that the Conservatives were offering a referendum on the euro. But that was their publicly declared reason on an issue of major constitutional change, a referendum is justified. And there he was staring at a proposal for major constitutional change, a Scottish Parliament, and Labour wasn't planning to hold a referendum. And he went back to his advice and said, well, how do we answer this question, Alistair? You know, I mean, we're saying, well, here we are. And of course, there was no answer to it. If you make that the principle 
behind a policy, it has to be consistent. And so Blair announced, and again, this is ancient history now, but I can't tell you the furore it caused in Scotland and the Scottish Labour Party at the time, Blair announced that there would be a referendum before a Scottish Parliament was introduced because it was a major constitutional change. And he was right to do that because suddenly Labour's proposals for various radical constitutional reforms became consistent. A referendum was needed first. It had major implications for Scotland because it meant that a Labour government didn't necessarily guarantee a Scottish Parliament. There now had to be a referendum as well. But it meant what Blair was putting forward in 97 was bombproof. And then I listened to Johnson's sprawling statement to the nation and wondered whether anyone in his entourage had even mentioned the prospect of bomb-proofing what Johnson was saying to no doubt a massive audience of many millions. If they had done, and I doubt that they did, clearly the idea was overlooked or ignored. Because whatever else you could say about that sprawling statement, it was not bomb-proof. It raised many complex questions and implied a series of contradictory aspirations that began to unravel speedily on the following day. And although what Johnson is navigating is the most demanding and challenging array of policy questions since 1940, and in some ways, actually, in their complexity, they are more demanding than 1940. But that is not an excuse for the confused wooliness of the statement. Just to take two or three examples. Johnson began to get into trouble, I think, at Prime Minister's Questions the previous Wednesday, when he said that the reason he was going to make a televised address to the nation on the Sunday rather than make the statement in the House of Commons was because he wanted the policies implemented right away on the Monday. So there was no time for a common statement first, eager to begin the implementation of the next phase. Now that was an example of Johnson uttering words that he did not really mean. He was trying to get away with not making a statement in the Commons first. But the reason I think they wanted the televised statement on the Sunday evening was because the last time Johnson made a televised statement uh, announcing the lockdown, which many of his allies thought would be unpopular because they misread the British public and assumed that the British public shared their libertarian instincts, uh, they found that when he made it, his poll ratings soared even higher than they already were. And it is therefore a format that they seek to use when it can be possibly justified. And clearly an exit strategy out of the lockdown is the kind of peg which 
justifies the grandeur of the televised address. Rarely used in the past, Blair used it um, when uh, going to war, which he did on a fairly regular occasion. Uh, but he only, I think, used it twice with Iraq and Afghanistan. Johnson has used it twice in the last few weeks. Now, the scale of the crisis justifies it. But in giving the impression that significant announcements were going to be made and applied on the Monday, hence the urgency of the Sunday address, Johnson already unleashed a degree of chaos over which he couldn't control uh, the consequences. One of them being that newspapers overexcitedly led on Freedom Monday, you know, exit from lockdown, a sunny day, giving the impression basically that the lockdown was ending. It is not clear whether those newspapers, specifically the Mail and the Sun, were briefed wrongly that there was going to be a moment of great liberation announced on Sunday evening and applied immediately. But that was the impression their front pages gave as a result of what Johnson said at Prime Minister's questions. And then it became clear after the statement on the Sunday night that in fact none of the propositions he was putting forward, which were in themselves limited, would apply until the Wednesday. So all the feverish anxiety about whether some people should return to work on the Monday was based on what Johnson had said at Prime Minister's Questions on the Wednesday. And in his imprecision on the Sunday evening about the timing of when people should go back to work, let alone the means. And so that led to a whole series of unavoidable, feverish speculation about precisely what he meant. Now, in some areas, and he is right about this, you can't be precise. He was right to say that in outlining his plans for phase two, three and four, they were wholly dependent on the infection rate and that they are not guaranteed moments of change. That will depend on the infection rate. So he was wholly justified about being imprecise over future developments. And he was right to make the infection rate the determining factor. But in the immediate set of propositions, there was total confusion. And so Dominic Raab was on the Today programme the next day, and he said it would be perfectly all right for people to meet both their parents at a social distance in a park. That needed clarification that it was only one person who you could meet socially. It was still not clear who would be expected to go to work and in what form. And in the Monday evening Downing Street press conference, Johnson said that he didn't expect anyone to go to work in the immediate aftermath of his televised address. It was more to do with the fact that they should get in touch with their employers to discuss the possibility of going back to work when they knew it would be safe to do so and that social distancing was being enforced. So it was utterly reckless to make these vague statements about returning to work without a clear timetable, without clarity about the safety mechanisms and still, actually, without clarity about how people get to work. Go, go on your bike if you can, walk if you can. 
Uh, now, that, those are great messages, and I take them up in London and really will do in the future. I'm not going to go on the underground. But lots of people, as he knows, are dependent on public transport. You can't cycle from Brighton into London, or you can't, you know, what about all those people living in Manchester who were raging about the, and Liverpool and Leeds, about the terrible train services for their commute to different parts of those areas? Well, they remain dependent on rubbish trains, but now are they unsafe trains? And those areas of clarity need and should have been developed before this grandeur of a televised address. But as I say, I think the appeal of the televised address was based on the assumption that this, in its unchallenging format, its direct no questions asked, millions watch, this was what was desired within number 10. And there were other elements that began to unravel the next day and that are still not clear. Quarantine finally being introduced on those coming into the UK should have been done two and a half months ago and it's part of the sort of incoherent message as with the lockdown that the moment the lockdown was imposed people said you've got to follow this stay at home and you will save lives when the week before they were saying go to Anfield to watch a Liverpool match against an Italian side with loads of Italian supporters being allowed to watch it that was then okay and so the argument goes with the quarantine that it will be needed now but it was perfectly okay in the past for it not to have been and even with the theoretical acceptance that the quarantine is needed there seem to be strange kind of contradictions like people can come from France without being quarantined which means it's a route through for other countries too. In other words the statement was not bomb-proofed. The broad direction was coherent and in my view right that the rate of infection determines the degree to which constraints can be lifted. And that had been thought through and is clearly in the sort of right area. But the specifics weren't. And as I say, the unravelling happened very quickly. And there is still also the issue of Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. Now this again is multi-layered. Nicola Sturgeon is a much more impressive communicator and a deft politician than anyone in the Westminster-based cabinet. She can appear wholly committed to the safety of Scotland, and I'm sure she is. But politics, and even in this crisis, it's true, works on many levels, and of course, she is a figure also committed to independence. And in implicitly exposing the incompetence at times of the Johnson administration, she's putting the case for Scotland becoming independent. And in going in a slightly different direction, albeit so far mainly tonally, she is in a way making a bigger leap away from Westminster-based politics than anything that has happened in the era 
during which the SNP have ruled the Scottish Parliament. Because if in a crisis of this epic proportion, Scotland goes in a different way to England, that is massively significant. And even now, you've got into a situation where Johnson is saying to people in England, yeah, you can yeah, drive in a car, go to a beach, as long as it's not Scotland or Wales. In effect, barriers are being put up, dividing the United Kingdom in a way that fulfills some of the dreams of nationalists. And so, again, none of the deeper waves fully thought through either. And it's interesting to ask why. Now, part of the answer is very simple, that this is an issue of such complexity. Mistakes are going to be made, consequences overlooked, even if some of the most titanic figures in the history of British politics were all together in place at the same time. But I think there is another issue uh, with... Um, the whole Blair era, they were so neurotic about the media in particular that there was a downside to the mindset of bomb-proofing propositions. And that was a caution brought about by fear of the media. If we do X, the media will do Y, therefore we can't do X even if there is a case for doing it. And that applied to Europe, but plenty of other issues too. But the reason with good cause Blair and others tested every policy, Brown too with economic policy, if we do this, what will happen? What will they ask? How do we answer? If we can't answer, should we do it? These questions in a never-ending, draining loop were, of course, the product of Labour's vote-losing past in the 1980s, which was the upbringing politically of Blair, Brown, Alistair Campbell and others. They saw what the media did to Kinnock, to Foote and others and were determined, if they possibly could, to neuter that by bomb-proofing policies. So nothing was ever said or done without the ultimate in internal scrutiny. In comparison, this group in Number 10 have led charmed political lives. They won a Brexit referendum, although in my view it was absolutely nothing to do with the Vote Leave campaign. The moment the referendum was announced, it was lost, in my view. I think that in calling it, if there had been no Vote Leave campaign, a majority of people in England would have voted for Brexit as they did. Nonetheless, the Vote Leave campaign convinced themselves that they were the key factor in the victory. Certainly that's Johnson's view, and which is why he brought Dominic Cummings in. And Dominic Cummings brought others in from the Vote Leave campaign. So here is a group in number 10 who got away with the most simplistic assertions. Get out of Europe, we'll have all this money for the NHS. If we stay in, Turkey is about to join and we could be overswept with them, etc., etc. There'll be no economic costs. It will be a straightforward negotiation. All the assertions made without much internal scrutiny from within the campaign. Let's take back control. Turn Dominic Cummings into a figure of genius. 
when it's not at all clear what that phrase means, and nor was there any great interrogation of the phrase. It was just seized upon and repeated, and they won. And then they had a general election at the end of last year, and they used that single phrase, let's get Brexit done. Again, no great scrutiny of what that meant or implied for the economy, for the future of Britain, what trade deals would look like, what the trade deal would look like with the European Union. Very little interrogation. And they have, in their charmed existence, faced a much lower bar than Labour leaders up to Blair, and therefore they are more complacent and unaware of the level of scrutiny that can erupt around them if they go too far in their willingness in a crisis of this scale. One thing about this crisis is that it's a really accessible crisis. Weirdly, because none of us, or not many of us, are scientists, and yet the elements of this emergency are far more accessible than Brexit and any of the other political dramas of recent times, uh, because people understand death tolls, people understand how a virus can spread, people can understand that lockdowns make a difference, and so on. These are not complex concepts in the way that trade deals are and whether you're better off inside or outside a union like the European Union. And that accessibility makes scrutiny much easier. And you can quickly understand policy or not understand. And the level of bewilderment that followed the televised address was interesting. Because in a way, you can understand statements, but if they're not clear, you understand you are bewildered with good cause. And some people on the Monday after the statement really were speaking of a sort of tipping point in perceptions of this government. Maybe not. We'll see. Probably a poll will come out and it will emerge that Boris Johnson is more popular than ever. I wouldn't be at all surprised. We live in strange times. But I think it does raise questions beyond a kind of bubble about competence, strategic clarity, with all kinds of consequences for the future of the union as well as the safety of everybody and, of course, the economy. And that was the other really revealing thing about the last 48 hours, that Boris Johnson was trying to do two contradictory things because he hasn't wholly resolved in himself the way forward and it is not the resolution isn't easy I don't think it's about a divided cabinet and he was trying to appease both sides about you know those who want economic growth to prioritize over the lockdown he is in complete control of that cabinet he can decide and they will follow meekly at this phase of his leadership that might not last much longer but he single-handedly won them the majority in December he single-handedly picked this cabinet largely because of their hardline views on Brexit and they are there courtesy of him he knows that they know that and therefore he can decide and lead on his own inclinations but his own inclinations are somewhat confused Hence, 
partly the confused message in that he does want people or some people to go back to work and yet having had the disease he knows how severe it can get and I think he is genuinely determined for there not to be a second peak and apparently Cummings has read about the Spanish flu and that the economic hit was greater because there was a second wave and a third wave and therefore if you can avoid the second peak you avoid the nightmare of imposing another lockdown which wrecks the economy on the scale that this one has done. But there is, of course, part of him. It was the libertarian street, which meant fatally the lockdown came far too late in the United Kingdom, and I bet he knows that deep down. There is this other streak of wanting things to get going again in the economy. There is in the Treasury... An embedded culture of what its former permanent secretary, Sir Nick McPherson, calls sound money. They hate the level of borrowing that is required to keep the economy going at the moment and want to end the arrangements as soon as is feasible. And that would be when more people can get back to work, obviously. And Johnson understands that. And therefore, there was this ambiguity about trying to urge more people to go back to work in his statement on Sunday while staying safe. It was an ambiguity that he tried to resolve more clearly on the Monday night, as I mentioned earlier. But it's there, and it is there in a lot of leaders at the moment. But if you have decided that keeping the infection rate down is the key and the driving force of everything, which he appears to have done, that means the economy is going to move very, very slowly. It's quite interesting in his sequencing. He cannot resist holding out hope that by July cinemas might have opened and all kinds of things, cafes and all the rest of it. Well, let's see. And how does social distancing work in those situations? So many unanswered questions, which are justifiably unanswered at this point. But to cause the confusion about what happens in the immediate aftermath of the statement reflects an incoherence, a lack of media awareness, a lack of clarity about messaging. What is this phrase, stay alert? You know, he's already described this virus as an invisible mugger. You can't say, oh, here it comes, I'm alert to it, I'm going to run or bash it about. You come this way, mate, I'm going to sort you out. I'm so alert. And this lack of, in a way, communication skill is very marked. And in a crisis of this depth, where there aren't, scientific objectively practical measures that can guarantee a virus being in inverted commas beaten the clarity of the messaging is so important which is why sturgeon is so much more impressive as a communicator because although as i say i think she is thinking and calculating on several levels there is an appearance of total clarity meanwhile keir starmer has had, in a way, the most interesting start for a leader of the opposition that I can recall. He's had opportunities too, but always in a tough context. He's the first leader of the opposition 
to have been given a televised address to the nation within two or three weeks of getting the job ever. Most leaders of the opposition have to wait a long time for a privilege like that. But he got it right away. And he did well in a difficult context where you have to be seen to be supportive of the wider attempt to get Britain out of this, because who's for Britain not getting out of this, whilst registering concerns about government policy and also reflecting on the wider implications of what follows for society at the end of all this. And I think he managed that in the four or five minutes he got. By the way, I've just thought Blair, after his party broadcast on the war in Afghanistan, uh, Ian Duncan Smith had just been elected leader of the opposition. Perhaps he got a televised address. I don't know. But if he did, it would have been one that didn't help him very much because he never managed to improve his personal ratings to any great extent. But Starmer, I think, made use of the four minutes and... In a way, although this crisis is difficult and it's not about normal politics yet, although it will be soon, it plays massively to his strengths. The court-like interrogation of Johnson with his statement in the Commons on Monday afternoon, his two prime ministers, two or three prime ministers' questions, one with Johnson, two with Dominic Raab, all were very precise questions with big implications about government clarity and competence. And at this stage, I think he's doing really well. It's not easy. You could look peripheral, opportunist, awkward, doing that straight-to-camera piece in the election to the nation broadcast is, is not an easy thing to do. But I thought he looked fine. People can look deranged when they're staring at a camera for four or five minutes, but he looked calm and considered. It must have been one hell of a day for him on Monday. He had to do a forensic analysis of the Johnson statement in the Commons on Monday afternoon and get ready for this broadcast, which uh, is not an easy balance to pull off. Uh, and he did, I think, a series of interviews on some breakfast programmes as well. But he's got the energy. And so far, I think he's basically got it right. You can't hammer them uh, when there is a will for them to do well, but you can really go for them when the chaotic shambles are so worthy of interrogation, so needed, and that he has done. So here we are in phase two. We're allowed to go for a drive. We can go for a swim in the sea. Sod's law, the bloody weather's got cold, just as we can go and drive and have some cold water swimming. God, how I ache for that in the heat wave when we couldn't go anywhere. But we can't go if you're in England to Wales or Scotland. And I suspect the optimism implied in some of the later phases is going to be really tested. And the vagueness of the message will be, I fear, misread. There were many photos today of pretty packed London underground stations in the rush hour. That is going to be a spreader of this killer. And we've all got to be alert, to use the phrase of the moment. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to my 
bomb-proofing theory and why recent pronouncements have been far from bomb-proofed. Just a reminder again, next Monday, May the 18th, virtual show at 7 o'clock, which you can just go onto the King's Place website and tune in, and hopefully I'll see you there. And in the meantime, stay alert. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.